Last night, we introduced this uh, thing we call revival. Again, that's part of our spiritual vocabulary. Revival describes that fresh work of God and uh, God in the hearts of his people. It's God restoring us to a place of healthy spiritual living, a healthy relationship with him, a healthy relationship with others. We can't produce revival. That's God's sovereign work. Just like we can't produce the wind, however, we can set our sails to catch it when it comes. So there are things we can do to posture ourselves, to put ourselves in a position so that we can fully appreciate, experience God's work in our life. We saw last night the response of honesty. God's willing to meet you at this moment at your greatest need, but only if you're willing to get honest with yourself, honest with God, and when needed, honest with others. Tonight, we add to the puzzle the response of humility. Humility. In your Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. That's in the Old Testament portion of your Bible. Feel free to detour through that table of contents if you need to. If it helps, 2 Kings is right behind 1 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5 in your workbook, page 10. And as we did with the messages yesterday, we start with a revival truth here in your workbook. The revived heart is turning from pride and embracing humility. The revived heart is turning from pride and embracing humility. Now, I shared with you yesterday I'm a native Texan. Having been born in the great state of Texas, I know a little bit about pride. I'm going to be honest, as I travel around the country and introduce myself as being a native Texan, I find there's this stereotype out there of Texans, this stereotype that we're all loud and and egotistic and, and boastful. I want to set the record straight, folks. That's exactly how we are, okay? That's just who we are. We can't help ourselves. Heard about a Texan that was in California on a business trip. And he's sitting there at the table eating a meal, and in typical Texas fashion, he starts bragging. Bragging how the steaks are juicier in Texas, and how the waitresses are prettier, and how the football players are tougher, and he just went on and on. He finally went off uh, to the restroom, and those two Californians looked at each other, and one said, are you as sick of this guy as I am? The guy said, yeah, what are we going to do about this guy? He says, I think we can humble this Texan. He happened to have some prescription sleeping pills with him, so he put a couple in the tea, and the Texan came back and drank the tea, and well, by the time they got him in the back seat of the car, he was knocked out. The guy said, what are we going to do next? He said, over near where I live, there's a cemetery, and I noticed coming over here, there's a freshly dug grave. Let's have some fun with this guy. So they drive to the cemetery, they drag him, they lay him in the bottom of that freshly dug grave, And they walk off giggling, that's going to be one humble Texas come morning. Well, the sun rises, shines in, he opens his eyes, obviously disoriented. He kind of stands up and and looks around to get a lay of the land. And then, not to be deterred, he climbs out of that grave, stands there, raises his hands, and at the top of his voice he proclaims, praise God, it's resurrection day, and a Texan is the first one out of the grave. (laughs) Understanding humility, all right? Keep your finger there in 2 Kings 5. We'll get there in just a moment. Let me start with just some foundational truths. Understanding humility. Number one, if you want a relationship with God, you must come to him on his terms, which means humbling yourself. 
humbling yourself. Now, God wants a relationship with you. He's inviting you into a relationship with him. But watch, some of us have the audacity to approach the king of the universe expecting him to come to us on our terms. He is not going to bow to you. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But if you're going to be close to him, if you're going to walk with him, then you've got to be willing to humble yourself. One of the better known verses regarding corporate or national revival, tucked away in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Now, yes, this was a specific promise to ancient Israel regarding specific circumstances. But included in the promise, there are principles that I believe are applicable to God's people, all places, all times. Let's read it out loud off the screen. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Basically, God has given us a way in which to re-engage with him. He knows that we're going to drift spiritually, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. He knows that's our nature. So what he does is provides a means by which we can return to him. And so some of the things we're talking about, prayer, seeking God's face together, repentance. But notice the first step in returning to the Lord, if my people will what? Humble themselves. Humble themselves. Number two, humility is not thinking less of you, but thinking more of God and others. Now, humility gets a bad rap in our culture. We don't find very many prominent people, politicians, athletes, entertainers, who really demonstrate authentic humility partly because they don't really understand humility. And some of you are confused. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not becoming a doormat for others. Humility is not having a poor self-concept. It's really not about you at all. Rather, humility, not thinking less of you, but rather thinking more of God and others. And by the way, we base that on Philippians 2.3 a passage that Brent shared with us tonight. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, someone may be asking, why is humility a big deal to God? Why would God be so concerned that I humble myself? And the answer is simple. God himself is humble. It's part of his nature. And he wants us to be like him. He's conforming us to his image. Jesus was the epitome of humility. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, I'm humble. Philippians 2, 8, Jesus humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death. So if you're going to walk with God in intimacy, then you must also choose to embrace humility. One more thing before we look at the text. Humility does not come naturally or easily. Humility does not come naturally or easily. Humility is not our default. Pride is our default. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. Just as we don't understand humility, many of us don't understand pride as well. For instance, let's say we were standing in the foyer and just chatting about 
the service tonight and you said, Greg, what are you going to preach about tonight? I'm going to preach about pride. Now, you probably wouldn't say this out loud, but I'll tell you what you'd think. I bet there's going to be someone in the room tonight who really needs to hear a message on pride. You give it to them, Pastor. And the reason that many of us don't consider ourselves proudful is because we don't understand pride. We have a very narrow definition of pride. Again, we think of proud people as loud, overbearing, egotistical, and arrogant. And because you're not like that, you just assume that you don't have an issue with pride. But I'm going to show you tonight that pride has many, many more manifestations than that very narrow definition. 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. All right, pause just a moment. We have a very brief introduction to this man, Naaman, in verse 1. He's described as the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, quick geography lesson, a lesson and, and it's this way today, it was this way millennia ago. Here's Israel and then Syria, the neighboring nation. At this particular time in history, God was allowing Syria to dominate Israel because he was disciplining them for their rebellion and idolatry. So Naaman, as the commander of the king's army, he leads these raiding parties into Israel. I want you to see that Naaman is a man's man. He's also described as a great man. Now that may be a reference to his physical attributes. Warfare was brutal in those days. You had to be a, a strong person to survive, much less to climb up the ranks. Or maybe Naaman was one of those natural leaders, those charismatic personalities, and, and men just flocked to him, and leadership came easy to him. Uh, regardless of the circumstances, Naaman has reached the pinnacle of his chosen profession. He's the best of the best. And he's managed to enrich himself on these raids. In verse 5, again, we have a description of a portion of his wealth. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. By today's accounting, that would be the equivalent of about $3.3 million. And that's just his traveling money. I think Naaman would do well in 21st century America. He is in some regards the great American success story. Probably raised himself up, you know, from the ranks to become a leader, wealthy individual. He's one of those men who, again, has been able to achieve the dreams of so many of his day. If Naaman was living today, it wouldn't surprise me if he was the starting quarterback for your Eagles or your Steelers. Or my cowboys. Lord knows we need one. <laughs> if Naaman was living today, he 
might be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I want you to see that Naaman, Naaman is the epitome of a self-made man. Now we have one more description of Naaman in verse 1. It's tucked away almost like an afterthought, but he was a leper. And even though that's just a, a short phrase, it changed everything. Again, my divine or, or my uh, sanctified imagination kicks in here. And I can see Naaman, he, he gets up one day and he notices there's this ashen spot on the back of his hand. And you know, like most guys, he kind of rubs it, doesn't think about it. Two weeks later, it's there, but it's gotten a little bigger. And now at the nagging of his wife, he goes to his doctor, diagnosis leprosy, prognosis death. He'd watch many people die of leprosy. It was the terminal diagnosis of the ancient world. It was a long, lingering death. Leprosy tends to attack the extremities first and then make its way into the vital organs. And again, death is agonizingly slow. In his desperation, he begins to look for some kind of cure. Now, this guy has a soft side to him. He's got this girl that he took captive and she's working in his household and she is endeared to him. And she says, listen, there's a prophet. There's a prophet back in Israel. We'll find out later. His name is Elisha. I think if I could get you to Elisha, he could heal you. Let me pause just a moment. There are going to be times when God allows something in your life, something very painful, something very difficult, something that you may come to despise, and you're going to cry out to God again and again, and yet there's no relief. And it might just be that God is allowing this situation in your life, this circumstance in your life, to teach you one of the most important lessons that you're going to learn, and that is how to humble yourself. Some in the room can identify with Naaman because of a medical crisis that you're struggling with. For others in the room, it's a financial crisis that you're walking through. For some, it's a relational crisis, a struggling marriage, a prodigal child. For some, it's a personal crisis, a, a personal battle with things like anxiety, fear, depression, lust, alcoholism. And again, that thing which you despise may be allowed by God as an instrument to teach you humility. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now pause just a moment. Embracing 
humility begins when you and I are willing to identify the characteristics of pride in our lives. Now, I see characteristics of pride in Naaman's life. They're referenced in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, Naaman went away angry. Verse 12, he went away in a rage. Now, why was he angry? He was angry because he was no longer in control. He pulls up in front of Elisha's house. Now, again, he's an important person. He's got this entourage traveling with him, right? And he's got this wagon full of money, and he's got to have these soldiers to protect him and protect his money. See, Naaman always gets his way. Either he bullies or he bribes, but he always gets his way. So he pulls up in front of Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even show him the dignity of walking out to meet him. He sends his servant, a man named Gehazi. And Gehazi delivers a very insulting message. Hey, I hear that you've got a problem with leprosy. God wants to cure your leprosy. You see that river over there? We call that the Jordan. Go dunk yourself seven times and you'll be cured of your leprosy. Now, I don't know if you've been to Israel. I've been to Israel a couple of times. I've actually seen the Jordan River. I know we sing about it. It's the most famous river in the world, but honestly, there are places it's not very impressive, little more than a muddy creek. And here's Naaman. He's mad. Things aren't going his way. He's not in control. People aren't living up to his expectations. Let me hit pause and ask a personal question. Why are you angry? You say, Greg, how do you know I'm angry? I don't look angry. No, you don't. You've got your church mask on that we talked about last night. You look very happy and pleasant. But I know people. And there's someone in this room in the grip of anger, the same reason that Naaman was angry. Things aren't going your way. People aren't meeting your expectations. You're frustrated. Let me help you understand your anger. Took me a while to, to understand this as a pastor trying to help minister to people. I gradually began to understand that there are two levels of sin. There are root sins and there are fruit sins. Now you say, what, are, what would be fruit sins? Anger, lust, resentment. Those are fruit sins. And they come from the root sin of pride. Now, you and I can chase our fruit sins around, and I did that for a lot of frustrating years until I finally realized until people were willing to deal with the root sin of their pride, they weren't going to get consistent victory over their fruit sins. Let me illustrate it like this. I pull my trailer with a big old F-350 Ford truck. The ministry owns it. I'm thrilled to, to get to drive it. Guys are always pulling me over telling me that's a beautiful truck. I say, thank you. <laughs> Belongs to the Lord, but thank you. Every now and then, though, my truck frustrates me. I'll be driving down the road, and the check engine light comes on. Ah, i got to find a Ford dealer somewhere. That's time that I've got to uh, carve out of my busy schedule. And, man, it could be very, very expensive. But every time I turn on the ignition, there's that check engine light. So finally I say, i got to do something about this. I go into the house, I get a piece of tape, and I tape it right over that check engine light. Not worried anymore. 
Now you say, Greg, would you really do that? No, I'm smarter than I look, okay? See, I know that check engine light is not the problem. What that check engine light is telling me is that there is a problem under the hood. And until someone is able to get under the hood, they're not going to resolve my problem. You don't have anger issues. You have pride issues. You have pride issues. And until you awaken to that and realize it, you're going to continue to struggle. Well, there are some other evidences of pride. Let me touch on just a couple of, a couple of them. Folks with proud hearts tend to live lives independent of God. Independent of God. Here's my observation. Traveling across the country, multiple churches, all kinds of shapes and sizes. Our pews are filled with professing believers and functioning atheists. What do you mean by that, Greg? We profess faith in Christ, but we live our lives as if either Christ doesn't exist or he's irrelevant. Stubborn. Proud folks are stubborn. They have to have the last word in every conversation. Their parenting philosophy is simple. My way or the highway, right? This woman, I'm married to this man. I love this man. I'm committed to this man. And I'm going to fix this man if it kills us both. Well, number one, it's not your job to fix anybody. But that's stubbornness. I love this child. God gave us this child. But I'm going to teach this child to obey me if I have to ground her for the rest of her life. Stubborn. Self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Here's how they approach life. They have these little thoughts that go like this. I'm a smart person. I'm well educated. I've been pretty successful in business and my chosen career. I can figure this out. I just got to think it through. I just got to work a little harder and I can make it happen. Got a little video clip for you. It's from an old movie, Shenandoah. Jimmy Stewart stars as a widower. His wife was a committed believer and he's promised her that he's going to raise his children as Good Christians, but he's struggling with that, and you're going to figure out why. Lord, we... What'd I do? Well, it's what you haven't done, boy. A man eats with his hat on is going nowhere in a hurry. Now, your mother wanted all of you raised as good Christians, and I might not be able to do that thorny job as well as she could, but I can do a little something about your manners. Now, shall we? Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. Now, you're laughing because it's not you up there on that screen. And let me tell you what I believe is perhaps the most repulsive manifestation of pride as far as the Lord is concerned. When we wrap our pride with robes of self-righteousness, 
pride. Look on your workbook there. See the Mark 7 passage? I want you to read it silently as I'm reading it out loud. Because, and I want you to have your pen ready. I'm going to have you circle something here. Mark 7, 21. Uh, far from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. Circle the word pride on the page there. All these evil things, circled the phrase, evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now here we have God's opinion of your pride and my pride. Notice where God ranks pride, right in there with sexual immorality, murder, coveting, wickedness. God describes our pride as an evil thing. Why? Because it's our pride that put his son on the cross. Look at the next verse there on your outline. The Proverbs 11:2. when pride comes, there comes disgrace. Circle the word disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. How often have we allowed our pride to disgrace us? We've bullied others. We've dominated others. We've said hurtful things. And then we just sit there with our arms crossed. We're not willing to admit that we're wrong. We're not willing to seek forgiveness. And that's disgraceful. That's what our pride does. And look at the next one, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. Circle the word destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. I don't know who this applies to, but I just know in a room this size. There are relationships in this room that were destroyed because of pride. Divorces, parents estranged from their children because of pride. There are reputations in this room that have been destroyed because of pride. I was leading a conference in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. It was the second Sunday night. We were meeting with the church leadership, as we will again this Sunday night, to evaluate the conference. A senior man there was the chairman of their deacon body, and he was complimenting my family revivalist. He said, that Home Life Cafe yesterday, that was great. That's our family teaching seminar coming up this Saturday. And he was just bragging on the content, and he said, oh, I so wish that I had put those things into practice when my children were young. He said, but I made so many mistakes and then he just kind of got quiet found out later that he was estranged from his son his grown son lived there but they had no interaction he, they weren't involved in their grandchildren's lives at all and so i just said brother let me ask you a question let me say first we all have regrets as parents but let me ask you a question have you ever sought your son's forgiveness because you weren't the father you should have been? He said, no, I've never done that. I said, brother, my encouragement to you would be to go to him. Yes, your grown adult son and ask forgiveness. He said, I'm going to do that. Well, I saw him a day or two later. He had a big smile on his face. He said, I called my son up yesterday. I said, can I come to the office and see you? And reluctantly, he said, okay. And I walked in the room and there he was, uh, aloof and withdrawn, downcast. And he, he said, I looked him right in the face and I said, I just need to tell you that I was not the father that I should have been. And I, 
I need you to forgive me. Would you please be willing to forgive me? And he said, I watched my son's hard countenance begin to soften and eyes got a little misty. He said, yeah, Dad. Yeah, Dad, I'll forgive you. Now, that's what I call a bittersweet story. It's sweet because of the reconciliation. The bitterness, the years that were lost. The years that were lost because of pride. Go back to your chart with me. Proud hearts, humble hearts. Humble hearts, rather than living independent of God, they cultivate a conscious dependence on God. These folks are dependent on God. Now, how dependent on God are you? Let me give you a test. How much do you pray? Proud people don't pray. They don't need to pray. They got it all together. Humble people, they're praying because they're desperate. Proud hearts are stubborn. stubborn. Humble hearts are yielded. Yielded. You, you know, you're driving, you come to that upside down red and white sign, yield. What does that mean? If I and another driver come to the intersection at the same time, I have to defer. I let them go first. The perfect picture of a yielded heart is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, is it possible? Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Rather than a life of self-sufficiency, a Christ-sufficient life. They take serious the promise of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In and only through Christ who strengthens me. Well, let's find out how, uh, how things go for Naaman. Look down to verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed now, I know there is no God on all the earth except in Israel. Now pause. I love this picture. He's standing there, and he's pouting. I know he's pouting. It takes a powder to know a powder. I'm a world champion powder, all right? He's just he's mad. It's not going his way. Go down there in front of my men, dunk myself in that muddy creek. And again, he must have a soft side. They've endeared themselves to him. They call him father, term of affection. Father, he's told you a great thing. Just wash and be clean. And I can see him kind of just stomping down, you know, and he gets down there and he, and he goes down and he comes up. But see, it's still there. He said seven times. Okay. And he goes down the seventh time and he comes up. The scripture says he's been completely healed. His flesh, like the flesh of a little child. But I want you to understand, that's not the greatest miracle. Not the healing of his body, but the healing of his heart. He comes back to Elisha. Now I know there is no God in all the earth. But your God, my God, the true God. Think with me just a moment. 
Had Naaman allowed his pride to prevail, what would have happened? He would have loaded back up on that cart, gone back to Samaria, and died that very slow, lingering death. Think of what his pride would have cost him. Now I need to ask you something. What's your pride costing you? What's your pride costing you in relationships right now? What's your pride costing you in a reputation right now? I hosted my first life action conference back in the mid-1990s. I was pastoring a a county seat church, uh, a very established, well-known, influential church in the area. This was in the Texas Panhandle. And I got this crazy notion of bringing this team of 20 people to our church, you know, for all these Sundays. And I'm going to be honest, your pastors, I'm sure, had a pure heart. See, I knew there were folks in my church that wouldn't listen to me, so I thought maybe they'll listen to these guys, you know. And then God set his sights on my heart. And that week, penetrating conviction. I had not been maintaining purity with my eyes. I had not kept guard over my thought life and the images that I was viewing. And I confessed that to God, appropriated his forgiveness. And then I sat down with my wife. And gentlemen, this is the next conversation that you have, and that's with your wife. And I sought her forgiveness for what I had brought into my mind and thus into our marriage. And she graciously forgave me. A day or two went by, and I sat down with her again, and I said, I feel very compelled that I need to confess this publicly with our church. Now hear me, not all private sin needs to be confessed publicly, but I knew that I needed accountability, and I just felt God prompting me. So I got my staff together the Sunday after Life Action had left, and I shared with them that at the end of the service, I need to confess something, and I arranged for one of my associates, he would come and conclude the service. And so I I stood up at the end, and I shared with them what I've shared with you. And then I said, I'm going to go down to our fellowship hall, And I'm going to wait there. And if there's anybody else that's struggling in this area, any of the men in our church, if you'll come, we'll hold each other accountable. We'll pray and ask God to set us free. That was a long, long walk to that fellowship hall. And I stood there by myself. It seemed like hours. It was only a few moments. And then the service dismissed. One of my deacons came into the room first, said, Pastor, I'm struggling too. We're going to beat this thing. And then another and another. And before we were done, 65 men were standing in a circle. Many weeping. Taking our first steps into moral freedom. Because I was willing to humble myself. God graciously honored our church that day. Embracing humility. Repent of your pride. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent of your pride. Stop defending your pride. Stop pampering your pride. Stop excusing your pride. Call it what God calls it, an evil thing. And appropriate his forgiveness as we've talked last night. 
Read this one with me off the screen, our last passage tonight. Read with me. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's a very graphic phrase. God opposes the proud. Some translations say God resists the proud. Guys, I get that picture of that Heisman Trophy, you know, that stiff arm out there. That's the picture. God says, you don't need me? All right. I'll just step back and let you walk down the road away, and then we'll see how that works for you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. Now, a little preview. Tomorrow night is grace night. It's my favorite message of the entire conference. I love to preach about the grace of God. But you see, we've got to deal with pride so that we can understand and fully appropriate the gracious gift of grace that God wants to give us.